What's up, ATX? How's everybody doing? Yeah? Thank you for coming to our live TV podcast. This is TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm going to say TV again because it's fun. <laughs> Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast, TV's top five. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor. I said TV again. And I'm joined, as always, by the incomparable Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. I said TV again. This is not a drinking game, Leslie. <laughs> The thing you have to understand is that normally we record this in a very, very sterile room where we have to turn off the air conditioning and we sit across from each other and we talk to each other that way. So this is going to be all new and when we screw up, we apologize in advance. Yes. Well, for those who are, will be listening on Friday when this comes out online, we are coming to you live from the Stephen F. Austin Hotel at the ATX Television Festival, where, where we are on day one of the amazing programming that they've got lined up. Dan, how's Texas treating you so far? So far, so good. I feel like we need to be doing kind of a closed caption thing for the people who are only listening by the podcast. So what you have to imagine if you are listening on your podcast app is that basically, you know the scene in Bohemian Rhapsody, the Live Aid scene? It's exactly <laughs> like that. So, so I'm your co-host, Freddie Mercury, and I will be singing in a few minutes. Or we can get into what we usually do. For those of you who haven't checked us out, each week on the podcast, Dan and I go beyond the top headlines of the week into a deep dive analysis into the latest news. Today, we're going to have two segments with special guests that we're very, very excited about, plus a news of the week section and an audience Q&A. That's where you guys come in. So get your questions ready. We'll queue you up when it's time. And with all that out of the way, Dan, let's get into it. Number one. Leading off this week, we are joined by two very, very special guests, one of whom you may have just met, ATX co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland. <laughs> well, we know you guys have a lot going on, so let, let's get right into it. First of all, tell us how this all started. I mean, this really, as you mentioned in the intro, this is born out of a love of television, but what you've put together eight years now with this kind of a lineup and these kind of wonderful attendees, how did it start? Is it disrespectful to say unemployment? <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit. I was living at home with my parents working at Anthropology, and Emily was a temp at TLC Discovery, and we needed jobs. We had a tendency to quit our jobs and go travel on a regular basis, and so we never quite got past just a certain rung of the corporate ladder. We were assistants many, many years. Many, which is how we met at Fox Studios maybe eight years before that. But I honestly was looking for a festival to work for in Austin. South by and Austin Film Festival wouldn't hire me. And so then I looked for a television festival to work for anywhere and there didn't exist uh, anything that we really wanted to go to. And Emily told me to write it down and I did. And she, within a week, the internally infamous line is that she said, well, we could do this and we could do that. And then she paused and said, I just weed my way into your idea. If you want me to wee my way out, I really will. <laughs> and I grabbed onto her with two hands and said, absolutely not. And we built an advisory board and did a Kickstarter campaign. And it really came out of fan and industry coming together, ultimately was always at the heart of it. Now, I know that in the first couple of years, I, I saw, you know, obviously people on Twitter going, okay, we're in Austin for the television festival. And I didn't know what it was, didn't have a clue. People would mention queso. That sort of piqued my interest a little bit. For you guys, when do you feel like you sort of knew that you had something that... <laughs> it's a very specific year, Emily. <laughs> well, I will say, 
when we did the first festival, we had no idea what was going to happen. And we kept telling our friends and family, hey, we're quitting our jobs again and we're going to do this thing. And all we can see it was June 1st through 3rd that year is we can only see to June 3rd. And then after that, no idea. And it wasn't until people, when people were leaving the festival that first year, that they were asking to buy badges for next year. And the panelists were saying, hey, next year I want to come back and I want to bring this cast and this show and do this thing. And Kate and I were like, are we doing, we're doing this again? Wait, I'd, what? We're doing this again? I, we didn't plan for that. And then we did it again. And the first three years were very good and solid. And then year four was when we did the Gilmore Girls reunion. And that put us on a different sort of map in the television world. Um, and then the reboot followed and things like that. And that's, we knew we had something very special the first three years with the audience and the attendees that were coming together. And I think everyone here was very small and we all knew we were part of something special. But at that moment, we're like, oh, now we can pay ourselves salaries. So now <laughs> we can keep doing this full time. I will say, too, that first year, the thing that was really surprising is both on that fan and industry side. We we said as a thesis that turned out to actually be true that. Friday Night Lights fans were just as rabid as Firefly fans. They just didn't have a place to go. And so doing Friday Night Lights in a parking lot and seeing, I, there's a very sort of internal story that had been, happened that we did a Friday Night Lights screening in a parking lot in San, at the Hotel San Jose. And at the back of the parking lot, Jason Kadams was watching it with his wife. And a couple came out of the hotel and said, I heard that there, it was just a guest of the hotel, had no idea that a television festival was happening. And was like, I hear they're screening Friday Night Lights to Jason Kadams. And he was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, I have to go get my husband because our therapist told us this is what a good marriage looks like. I'll be right back. And I was like, this is, this is a thing. Yeah. I mean, the Friday Night Lights screening, that's when I first, when it first entered my orbit. And in LA, I've never had a bigger case of FOMO than hearing that the Friday Night Lights, and you had Connie Britton come out. That was year two. Yeah. I mean, just all of it. I mean, putting together these reunions, I mean, Gilmore Girls, that stage was filled. Uh, 17 people. <laughs> Not that uh, we're counting, but 17 people. Can you talk about the organization process and how, first of all, how long it takes you to book and schedule and coordinate this kind of a festival and specifically some of those reunions? I mean, well, Friday Night Lights was, uh, I mean, we built on Friday Night Lights every year. And that was very much, we learned very quickly. If the showrunner asks a cast to do something, they will show up. And Jason Kadams, that cast loves Jason Kadams. And so when we went out, once we got to Jason first, asked him to do it, he said, this sounds interesting, I'll come. And then when we started going to other people, we're like, and Jason Kadams is coming, they said yes immediately. And so we learned quickly that that's how you do a reunion. You have to get the creator on board first. And that built every year. Gilmore Girls took a year and a half and we were connected to Amy first. Stacy Oristano, who was on Bunheads, who was at Friday Night Lights, said, oh, you want to do Gilmore Girls? I know Amy, and emailed her. And Amy came on board, and then that first year, someone, I don't think Lauren could come. Lauren actually then came two weeks before the festival that year, year three, was like, actually, can we do the Gilmore Girls thing? I'm going to come with Peter. We'll be surprise guests for parenthood. And I was like, you can't do this in two weeks. <laughs> So it was a year in advance of the Gilmore Girls reunion that we had Lauren attached and Amy and then went to Alexis. And so we announced that one really early, but it was a year and a half in the making. And once we had the three girls, then the cast just kept coming. It was every day there was another cast member that was like, I can come, I can come, I can come. So we just kept bringing them all. So the long and short of that is some of them, Ugly Betty took two weeks. I mean, a truly, and really, really 48 hours. Like Emily ran into America Ferreira, very long story, at an event and said, would you want to do an Ugly Betty reunion? She sent an email the next day. They were all signed on 48 hours later and reps had approved it two weeks after it that. It took us longer to coordinate this. Yes. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Correct. 
And yep. then other ones like West Wing and Gilmore Girls can take, and Felicity can take anywhere between a year and a half and two and a half years, just timing wise. The complications, incidentally, is that they have very complicated riders, and you know <laughs> the negotiations were intense. Also, it's totally okay to cheer when you hear a mention of bunheads. I'm saying that for both for you guys and for the listeners at home. And Friday Night Lights. I mean, I'm biased, <laughs> but come on. But, yes. we, but we all love Friday Night Lights. It doesn't need you to clap for people to know that. But Bunheads needs why, love. Why would you rain on my parade? Fine, clap for Friday Night Lights, too. Now. One of my favorite things about the festival is that it does have these big, everyone wants to get together to watch the stars come out for these reunions, but then there are also these kind of granular, wonky, genuinely nerdy panels. And, and I love those, and I mean that only as the biggest compliment. And, we have, and by wonky, we mean incredible. Yes. Yeah. Like, this, like this one. Because this is the only festival that would allow us to do this, so <laughs> thank you. What is for you guys the ideal mix of populist fun stuff and wonky actual industry tangible stuff? I mean, it's really 50-50. We have a lot of metrics that we try and fill when mapping out the festival. So, I mean, at its core, it's a third past, a third present, a third future, and then half fan, half industry. We try and balance genres. We try and balance entertainment and education. We use all these words. We're like, we don't want to call it education. I mean, it's kind of education, but it's like fun education. So, but we try and balance all of these things. And then sometimes we're like, this is educational, though it's just talking about teen fandom, but it's educational on teen fandom, so we'll put it in that category. And there's like a very <laughs> deep debate about what it should be categorized as, and that's a waste of time. <laughs> but, but those are, at our core, we want every conversation to be positive and hopeful, but we want to tackle the hard issues as well. And so there is definitely a balance of that. And then you want something we're all TV fans, like you just geek out of a show together. So we want that too. So, I mean, I know we're on day one here, but <laughs> how much are you already working on season nine? Not to stress you out or anything, but. Yes, is the short answer. Um, people love to pitch ideas to us in the two weeks before the festival. People have a lot of ideas two weeks before the festival, and we're like, mm. And then every once in a while, a spot opens up, and we slot it in very last minute. But it's already started. And then we also, people come for the first time. And once they come for the first time and they see it, you have to see it to get it is the number one thing that we know. We have this tagline, TV Camp for Grownups. And we realized this year, you only understand that if you've been to the festival. It doesn't really work as a marketing tool because you don't understand it unless you've been here. And so it's really having people come experience it, and then they want to come back with their other shows because then they get what it is and what we're trying to do, and you can't really always put that into words. So now, we're already started now. Do you have a dream reunion that you'd like to do? I mean, a few. Well, my Buffy would be a dream reunion. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and also The Office. And Friends. Well, and Friends, but really my top two are Buffy and The Office. Your top two. <laughs> my top, she asked my top two. Now you're top two. Okay, oh, Caitlin, where are your top two? Uh, no, I mean, Friends has always been at the top of the list. I mean, it's the, the ones that are our dreams are the obvious ones <laughs> and the ones that are going to be really hard. But I mean, I think that the other ones that are fun are doing sort of like last year doing like Northern Exposure and things like that. Mad About You is high on the list. Mercy Especially Brown. considering the revivals coming. Oh, I mean, we'll see. We, try, we, we tried for it this year too. The problem is the revivals, we want to beat before the revival, so the re revival kind of pops our balloon. <laughs> we were trying Will and Gr before Will and Grace, and then Will and Grace and came Murphy back. And Murphy Brown. Like, before oh, that doesn't. You know, we're gonna try again. We'll keep going. Well, Emily and Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having.
Thanks to you guys. Thanks for being here. And everyone should make sure to follow at ATX Festival for updates on the panels. For example, if red carpets are going to be indoors or outdoors, depending on rain. The ATX app is also the place for all of your ATX Festival details. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thanks, guys. Well, that's a good place for us to move on to our second segment, and this is much more in line with what we do. It's a News of the Week segment. Number two. Yes, every week, typically, and the name, as you might have noticed, TV's Top 5, so normally we count down four of the week's biggest news stories and get all granular with them, and then I rant about some TV show or other. And I argue back with you and present the context, and then you argue back with me. Exactly. But yeah, so fine. this week, we're going to kind of rush through a lot of general TV news. Some of it we'll talk a bit about. If there's anything that we didn't get into enough depth on, that's what Q&A is for. Yes, yeah, so you guys are the third segment. So get those questions ready as soon as we're done rattling off all of the week in TV news. Here we go. DC Universe This Morning canceled Swamp Thing, an epic six days after it premiered. There is a punky Brewster reboot in the works with original star Soleil Moonfry, which, who I grew up watching. And that's produced by the studio UCP behind shows like Amazon's Homecoming and USA's Mr. Robot. And Sam, Sam Esmail's Punky Brewster. I am there for it. I would watch. I would really watch. In less happy news, Sci-Fi has canceled Happy and Deadly Class. Producers Universal Content and Sony are shopping both series, which last I checked, not very likely to go find a new home. Netflix breakout Dead to Me, starring Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini, is renewed for season two. But then it's back to the bad news, Dan. Amazon canceled. Brian Cranston produced Sneaky Pete uh, after three seasons. And for those of you interested, The Ranch, Ashton Kutcher said, is going to end next year after four seasons and an impressive 80 episodes. So a short order, but in terms of seasons, but a real big amount of content. I'm monitoring the crowd reaction here. We got yes. definite, we got definite Defin sadness about Sneaky Pete, but much less about The yeah, Ranch. Yeah, not an area reaction. <laughs> Yeah, and meanwhile, James Holzhauser's 32-game Jeopardy winning streak, yeah, that ended, and he fell short of the record. So, Dan, there's, there's a lot of news this week, but what, what stands out to you? I'm just really curious what sci-fi is doing. And this is not me being challenging or me being insulting. It's just me asking a genuine question, because these two shows were part of not necessarily a wholesale rebrand, but they were part of a, okay, here's what this brand can mean. And they lasted very, very briefly, just like... Two seasons and one season. Yeah, yeah, and just like The Expanse was supposed to be part of a, okay, now we're going back to space, um, along with Night Flyers. And they spent a lot of money on The Expanse. It was something like $100 million because there was an app involved with it. It was a really, really big bet on sci-fi. And, and in terms of Deadly Class and Happy, this was part of a big strategy where they were really looking to say, it's in our name, sci-fi. Why are we not making shows that are science fiction? And they kind of doubled back down, and now both shows are gone. And, and these are shows that had at least some fans. I was not a fan of Deadly Class, but Happy definitely had people who really enjoyed the wackiness that that show delivered. And, you know, Sci-Fi does still have The Magicians, which people genuinely love. Surely we can get a little bit of cheering for The Magicians in here. Okay. <laughs> so it's just, the, it becomes a kind of question as we look at their lineup and its constant changes of kind of how you build around the things that are successful and maybe how you don't. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. You know, what stands out for me, you know, to me, of the two, the happy cancellation really stands out because that was a show that was owned, Universal Content, which we keep talking about that studio, but they have a lot going on. It's obviously owned by Comcast. They're launching a streaming service of their own. 
And when you own a show in-house, it makes it considerably easier to bring it back for a second season. You're not paying an expensive licensing fee. You don't have to, like, worry about what, you know, it had a streaming deal with Netflix. Allegedly, it's got a lot of fans. Season one did very well on Netflix, according to people close to the matter. But yeah, they canceled that. And then Deadly Class, you know, that cancellation makes a little bit more sense considering it was a co-production with UCP and Sony. Anytime a show is owned by an outside studio, you have to pay a licensing fee and negotiate it. Sony is an independent studio. It's very hard to succeed as an independent studio when you don't have a network backing your show, when you, know, it, it, you don't have a natural home for your content. So it makes selling stuff a lot harder, especially in this era where it's hard to tell what, what a breakout hit is when you have you know, everything's, what, a point two in the demo is a hit and a, a point one is a cancellation. I mean, that's, you know, the difference is menial. So now what do we know about the Punky Brewster hypothetical reboot other than that it's not really from Sam Esmail? <laughs> I would really watch that show. Of course, we all would, because the thing is, I don't know how many of you remember what Punky Brewster was actually about. That show was dark I see one person hell. nodding. I mean, she, she, they got locked in a refrigerator, Dan. There, there were things that happened on that show that were messed up and twisted and that very easily, like I can imagine the Jason Kadams version of, uh, you know, of, of Punky Brewster, why not? I mean, I think he's Other making than... that show this fall, right? <laughs> or Fox? What was it? Is that the sperm? The, the, the sper father whose like sperm is used in like across hundreds of patients, and he fathered a bunch of children. A uh, spermanent vocation is what I'm calling it. <laughs> You're all free to use that as you as you choose. No, um, and so the plan would not be though to adapt it off of the animated version that featured her no. with the little alien creature called Glomer. Anyone remember Glomer? Let's get some Glomer fans out here. Yeah, here that, seriously? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Once, once again, for the people only listening, there were two people who clapped for Glomer, so. But no, the, the reboot, first of all, it doesn't have a network, we should specify. It's being developed by UCP, and Soleil Moonfry is gonna re reprise her role, Punky, Punky Power 2.0. This time, she is a single mother of three children, much like the actress is in real life, and it's kind of her navigating life again, so. That's as much as we know for now. It really feels like a test of nostalgia to me, but you know, that's that's what TV sometimes is. The curious piece of it to me, not you know, not just about the premise. I mean, I'm already in. All you had to do was tell me Punky Brewster. I mean, I'm a child of the '80s. I, I'm here for that, no matter even if Sam Ismail isn't doing it. But what, what's interesting to me is UCP is a, is a cable-focused studio. The, it used to be called Universal Cable Productions, and they changed the name Universal Content because this is going to be one of the primary suppliers of content for the upcoming Comcast streaming service, which will launch next year. And Punky Brewster is, A, it's the studio's first comedy, and B, it's a multicam. So this is a shift in strategy, or an addition in strategy for this studio. So it'll be very interesting to see, if, A, if this comes together, and B, what platform is gonna do that? Well, that brings us to our third topic this week. It's time for the mailbag. Number three. Dan, this is a regular segment that we have on the podcast. For those of you in the room not familiar, if you have a question about TV, you don't understand a cancellation or a plot twist or just want to drop us a line to say hi and, and say how great the Dodgers are doing this year. The, the, the Red Sox are beating up on the Royals right now, so. How many games out of first place are you guys? Well, they're wild card slots. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you drop us an email at, at TV's top five at THR.com. And today we are going to do this live. That's where you guys come in. The wonderful people assembled here today at ATX. As we get things started off, if there's any questions we have, one from our email, a, a very familiar listener. Yes, uh, frequent listener Alan Sepinwall asks, <laughs> um, 
I promise we didn't solicit this. We know that Leslie loves friends and had the Central Perk couch at her wedding. This is a true story, incidentally. It's very cool. But does she share Dan's hatred of Seinfeld? If not, how does she feel about Dan's hatred of uh, the other linchpin of must-see TV? I love Seinfeld. And, you know, I think the anniversary is coming up next month. I think it was the 30th anniversary since its premiere. It was, I mean, it was a, a staple. I mean, the Sousa show was on when I was in college. It was, you, I watched Friends, I watched Into Seinfeld, and then I watched ER. That was my Thursday. I don't understand how you don't love, what, what don't you love? Do you, lo you don't like shows about nothing, Dan? <laughs> I watch plenty of shows about nothing, trust me. Oh my God, I've seen, I've heard what's on your DVR. Yes, you do. It's literally everything, that's not really. <laughs> My TVR shows about everything. But my problem, as I've said several times on a podcast that I used to do with question asker Alan Sepinwall, is just sort of a, a feeling about, for some reason, and I love all the actors on that show, or at least the ones who haven't said unfortunate racist things in public in recent years. Um, Fair. <laughs> and I even watched uh, Jason Alexander's direct TV show. Did any of you guys even know that Jason Alexander had a direct TV show? On Audience Network? Yes, on Audience Network. Don't seek it out. It was really actually, <laughs> it was horrible. But <laughs> I love all the actors for whatever reason, those particular interpretations of those personae annoyed me more than they were supposed to. Whereas in the Curb Your Enthusiasm version of it, Curb Your Enthusiasm is a show that I love. So you would think Larry David, Larry David, comparable sensibilities. For some reason though, one rubs me the right way, one rubs me the wrong way. That does not sound good. <laughs> but this That is will live. be edited out on the podcast. I hope not. <laughs> Warts and all. But it's interesting, you know, I actually didn't like Curb Your Enthusiasm. That wasn't a show that, that was for me, but I love Seinfeld. I watch it in repeats. I have some of the DVDs. Yes, I still buy DVDs, but, you know, it, it, to me it was super fun. Plus, you know, baseball references and Keith Hernandez and George Steinbrenner. I mean, I, I was here for all of But Bill Buckner, Rest in Peace, was on Curb Your Enthusiasm and was fantastic on Curb Your Enthusiasm. It was the key to the resurrection of the Bill Buckner image was Curb Your Enthusiasm. So, all hail Bill Buckner. Deserved better than some of the headlines he got in his passing. Are there any questions coming from the audience? We Excellent. have a question. Here we are. Here we go. This is my fifth ATX festival, and I like to ask the people who spend the entirety of their lives watching TV, what should we be watching that we are not watching? That is a great question. Dan, you are the, that's the how critic I, That's how I found Fleabag, well, by I'm, the way. OK, well, there, there's an easy start right there. If you have not watched Fleabag. Fleabag. That one, that one is easy. There are two seasons, six episodes apiece, half-hour episodes. You can binge it in a day, basically. My parents watched it in two days, for heaven's sakes. So that's, that would be an easy one. Honestly, this has been a spectacular year for kind of creator-driven half-hours that are sometimes extremely funny, but other times only, you know, kind of funny. But um, I'm telling everyone as much as I possibly can to watch Rami. Um, so that is on Hulu. It is Rami Yosef's comedy series about a 20-something Muslim guy in New Jersey living his life and observing his faith. It's, it's a wonderful show about religion, about culture. It's, it's tremendously specific. It's a show that really only the people making it could have made. And that's a thing that I love. Last night, I moderated a panel for Stars is America to Me. How many people watched that last year? Not enough Two is people. the answer. It was the best show of last year. It is 
powerful, provocative. It is a documentary series about a Chicago area public school and economic inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality, but it also has the storylines of a John Hughes movie because it's high school kids being high school kids. It, it is such a wonderful show and so many people didn't even know it existed. And Stars has a lot of good programming. They really do. I think, I think a lot of people still sort of think of Stars as the network that you go to for random nudity if you aren't going to Cinemax. <laughs> but, but if you go to Stars, lots of people love Outlander, Vita's a great show, and American to Me is, is wonderful. So, but how about you? What, what should people be watching? You, know, you mentioned Hulu, and I'm going to mention one of your favorite shows to make fun of in terms of the title, but I absolutely really enjoyed Hulu's Pen15, or as you like to call it. I believe you're referring to Hulu's penis. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was a great coming-of-age story set in, the, set in the 90s. It's just you have adult actresses playing, like, teenagers. It was just it was so awkward, but it was all, such, like, a slice of life where you feel like you've been there, and it's just it's so instantly relatable. And then for me, you know, look, take this with a grain of salt. I'm not a critic. I'm a reporter. But the sh one of my favorite shows of the past year, and it's coming back th uh, later this month, was Pose over on FX. Uh, TV record, the number of transgender series regulars played by transgender individuals. Stephen Canals is an incredible interview. He was just on the Hollywood Reporter's Roundtable. This is a shameless plug. You guys got copies out in front of you. It's a great read. And it's just, it's honestly one of my favorites. Season two kicks off, I think, June 11th. Really heavily influenced by Madonna's Vogue. I'm very excited for season two. No, it is very good, and I will talk a little bit more about it when we get to the Critics' Corner. Yeah, it's coming up. Other questions? I was wondering if you guys could give an update on Amazon in general. That's a, that's a big, like... <laughs> <That's> a big... <laughs> Are you suggesting that you ordered a book from them that hasn't arrived yet? Because I can't do anything. Do you guys do, uh, like, an update of the network? Ah, he means a what the bleep is up with yes. Amazon segment. And this Excellent. is one of our recurring segments that we have on TV's Top 5. Um, look, they have a new head of programming, Jennifer Salke, who came over from NBC. She's really made a big push for a lot of genre content. They're greenlighting shows. They're being very aggressive in signing overall deals. You know, Sneaky Pete, you know, we're getting back into the ownership piece of it. You know, I heard a couple people were disappointed with that cancellation. I take no, <laughs> I have no role in that. But what's interesting to me is that was another show that's owned by Sony. And in this era where even, even streamers like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu are making ownership a huge priority. And when you've got a show like Sneaky Pete, this is, you know, under the previous regime, which is the Roy Price regime. He greenlit the show. It was originally developed for CBS as a pilot, moved to Amazon after they passed on it. And I think going back to season one, they premiered it. And then within, I think, a week or two, they renewed it. And the quote that came along with it is that it was one of their most streamed original series on day one of launch. And... Two years later, it's canceled. A lot of it probably because they don't own it, and Sony, they have to pay a licensing fee. It's expensive, and their ratings are, honestly, like every other streamer, a complete and total mystery. You know, look, coming up, Lord of the Rings. They spent $250 million just on global rights alone for the show. That's not counting how much they're going to have to cast it, whatever people they hire to produce it and build the sets. And I mean... That's a massive investment in content. And I think there are some people who are kind of looking at Amazon as being kind of just on the the brink of when Lord of the Rings comes or when their kind of big ticket things come. But in in short term, we mentioned Fleabag just a couple seconds ago. Catastrophe would be another great series that you could run through quickly that's on Amazon. So they have lots of quality program as we're sort of waiting for the big yeah. stuff to come along because heaven knows 
there's going to be a lot of expectation whenever we find out what the heck that Lord of the Rings series even is. And they're spending a lot of money on content, billions. I think it was $4.5 on content per year, last I checked. And they've greenlit a lot of shows, a lot of top producers. They've inked a lot of people to first-look deals, which is interesting because it means if you have an idea, if Jordan Peele has an idea, they bring it to Amazon, and if Amazon wants it, they make it. But if they don't want it, then he's free to take it somewhere else, which is an interesting take for them to, to have. But it's also a great way to bring talent in-house. Like, look, they've got a ton of stuff, but I think it's right now we're kind of in the waiting period until they start unspooling some of the stuff that Jen Salky ha has greenlit and ordered. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what, what comes of it. So, super interesting to keep to, to monitor. We will talk more about it. We have another question. Um, I am a huge fan in absorbing all television and all networks, and I am very interested in fan campaigns. They're saving Brooklyn Nine Nine, okay? Nine Nine. Nine Nine. Um, you know, timeless, and there's, you know, right now campaigns I'm very invested in saving one day at a time, and Winona Earp, which is a whole separate issue with, you know, studio network, and, and I know an, an issue with money, but I'm curious to see what your opinion is on the genuine success rate of fan campaigns, if you think it actually plays a factor or not in saving shows. It's a great question. It's a hard one to answer because it's really challenging to, to figure out what the, when you see people talking on social media, obviously, you know, the louder the voice, the better. And I think every show is, is a case-by-case -case scenario. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for example, that was a show that is owned by Universal Television, which is the NBC-based studio, the, NB, the NBC-affiliated studio. And it aired on a network, Fox, that had to pay the studio a licensing fee. And when Fox canceled it, A, that cancellation was part of a massive amount of cancellations. It was like five or six different shows, all one fell swoop. They like just ripped the bandaid off. And that was a network that's changing directions because its parent company sold its TV studio and film studio and Nat Geo and FX to Disney. So the network is changing directions. So they canceled Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And Last Man on Earth. I still miss Last Man on Earth. Yeah, so they canceled Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And NBC is like, wait a second. This is a proven asset. The voices in the room were very, and by in the room, I mean on social, were very loud. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda's tweeting. I mean, it, it had a massive amount of But in this case, and it made a lot of sense business-wise for NBC to pick it up. They were, you know, when you own a show, like I said, it's, it's a lot easier to keep it going. And they probably can easier monetize it now. You add the more episodes, it helps you go into syndication, which is a completely different revenue stream. It's... It financially incentivized them to pick it up at NBC. So other shows like Timeless, you know, that was that was an incredible story. It was like canceled what twice? The first time it was revived, I think it was like a week after the cancellation. That was again, you know, we're talking about ownership and, indep and independent studios. Timeless is owned by Sony, independent studio. And what happened, as far as I, I remember from my reporting around that, that was a deal that Sony made with NBC. And it became a co-production. So Universal Television owned half of it. Sony owned half of it. So there was a financial stake for and a financial reason for NBC to pick that up. So how much fan campaigns mean? I think it helps. I don't know that it's solely responsible for that. Dan, what, what do you think? Well, as a tease, we're going to talk a little bit about this in our next segment. So Spoiler just alert. get ready for that. Um, I, I mean, it obviously helps because if you're a network, you want to see that there are passionate fans out there because that's all that people want to see is that it's moving the needle and that they're not just casual people who have the show on in the background. They want to see if people can mobilize. They want to see if people are going to go commit, you know, horrible acts of vandalism to prove that they love their show. They probably don't want to see that, by the way. Yeah, no, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. No, but, uh, but I, like if you look at the numbers, though, they're still the number of shows rescued by Save Our Show campaigns is still significantly lower than the number of 
Save Our Show campaigns, and we've also reached the point at which, thanks to social media, uh, you know, as I always say, every show is not just somebody's favorite show, it's like 100,000, 200,000, a million people's favorite show, even when it's something that's ridiculous and to my mind seems awful, it has people who love it. And that makes it hard for a network to be able to distinguish between show X that has 100,000 passionate fans and the 100,000 passionate fans for another show, so. Designated survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so you know, like, obviously, you would never want to tell fans not to be passionate and not to be fans, um, but it, it's sort of the line that, that goes from enthusiastic desire to entitlement that becomes where things get a little something. And, but, you know, be, be passionate, because if we're not passionate about this stuff, what are any of us doing here at this festival. So yeah, exactly. be passionate. So okay, we've got one last question before we move on to our next segment, where as I said, we will discuss some of what we just discussed. First of all, to the previous question, I was the guy that initiated the Save Veronica Mars petition for season two. And I was told directly by a member of the San Diego Film Commission, which is where Veronica Mars filmed, that the petition played an instrumental part in getting that show renewed for a second season. That was great. I remember it was a Saturday. I had the petition all printed out. There were like 4,000 signatures, and I was just about to ship it off on the following Monday when word broke over the weekend that the show had been renewed. So I never actually sent the petition off. <laughs> 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 anyway, my question, also about Veronica Mars, funnily enough, is actually, this is already beginning of June, and Veronica Mars is going to be premiering in July on Hulu. Do you know of a date when the first three seasons are going to be released on Hulu? Good question, and I've, and I've asked Hulu people about that, and I think there was some point at which I casually mentioned, gee, it would be a really good idea, and someone made it sound as if they hadn't even considered it, which was... Yeah. Well, I'm not naming any names. It was a strange conversation, though. I mean, but, but Veronica Mars is produced by Warner Brothers, right? Yes. That, that might be part of the reason why we don't know. So Warner Brothers, like I said, there's a bunch of new streaming services launching um, late this year, early next year. Warner Media is one of them. And right now, everyone wants library content. Um, I don't know, if you guys familiar with Disney Plus? Did you see, watch their presentation? It was incredible. It's like, here's, we're going to have the entire library of The Simpsons, and here's all Marvel, and here's all Star Wars. Everyone wants content, and especially library content. Do you guys watch Friends or The Office on Netflix? Those are probably going to go away from Netflix and move to Warner Media streaming service and probably the Comcast streaming service, because that's who owns those shows. So my guess, and again, just a guess, is Warner Media is probably holding back Veronica Mars because they want to keep it for themselves. The flip side of that is Hulu would probably pay a lot of money for that content. So it's a big question and a great question to ask. Thank you. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear on future podcasts or you want to talk baseball, please email Dan and I at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TVS, T-O-P, the number five at THR.com. Number four. To discuss the state of NBC, we are thrilled to welcome some very special guests, Lisa Katz and Tracy Pacosta, the co-presidents of Scripted at the network. 
for you guys that don't know, Lisa and Tracy took over for Jennifer Salke in February after serving as heads of drama and comedy at the network, respectively. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for Thank having us. Thank you so it. much. And I'm glad we at least got to briefly meet you in the green room for three seconds before <laughs> this. So this was not our first time sitting together. I, I feel like the first question is probably one that was just suggested by our fine questioners. How much difference do fan campaigns make and how do you kind of distinguish between the 100,000 people who like one show and the 100,000 people who really like another show? I think that there's a lot of factors that go into these decisions. And as Tracy and I say all the time, it is hands down the worst part of this job. Because for every show, there are so many people that work so hard for so long to make this labor of love. And you hope it connects with an audience. You hope that it hits all of the metrics you need it to. And sometimes they fall short. And we have to make that call. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. There's the financial component, which you know you talked about. There's ratings, and we're lucky now that it's not just linear ratings, it's also delayed viewing and digital ratings, and we're able to look at it as an aggregate, so that I think you know, something that might get a certain number in the overnights that everyone publishes, it's a very different story 35 days later, a year later, two years later. And then also what our scheduling needs are, what room we have, varying, like looking at that against what a new show might bring and what that'll bring. And then passion, and it's passion internally. We are so passionate about so many of the shows as are a lot of our colleagues and externally. And so I think hearing from fans is super valuable, but there's so many factors it's not gonna, I don't think it's gonna totally tip the needle, but I think hearing from that makes you happy about this decision you're ultimately making. And, and with a show like Brooklyn, which was a show that clearly fits on NBC and like Leslie was saying, is a show that the studio developed. I'm, I was at the studio at the time, so it was like a personal passion of mine to bring it back, you know, and Andy was part of the NBC family, and Mike Schur is such a huge part of the NBC family as with Dan Gore. It was a bit of a no-brainer for us, as much as Lisa and I were like, we need this. I mean, it was a whole company's decision to say immediately, like, let's make a deal, this makes sense. Yeah, it was like 40, less than 48 hours. It was so quick. And that is a testament to the place that we work, but also, like, this was... A, an easy decision. We just had to make that deal quickly. It feels to me like kind of Jericho ruined this whole thing <laughs> because it gave the impression that purchasing legumes, purchasing peanuts, whatever, sending them to people, that that was a way of kind of pushing the needle. What would you tell fans when their favorite show gets canceled that they want to do versus really what's not worth their effort? <laughs> well, I feel like passion is everything. And even we, we tell that to our departments all of the time. And it's the thing that we say the most about our jobs. Like, we have the greatest jobs. We love our jobs. And we use our voice all the time for shows that we love, too. So we would never say, like, don't tell us what you love. But as far as how much that moves the needle, like you said, all of the factors have to come into play for the for us to be able to take something and make it our own. But look, we do love hearing from you, and the talent loves hearing from you as much as they love their shows. But everything, the stars have to align for us to have something that makes sense for us. I'd also say say it before it's canceled and watch it <laughs> yeah. before it's canceled. Vote with your remote. Because yeah, I think exactly. a lot of times people say, oh, I really wanted to watch that show. I'm like, that's <laughs> what we run into, so... 
maybe while it's happening rather than after the fact. Yeah, um, you guys did just cancel. Not that I'm, I'm not Debbie Downer, but you know, when you cancel three shows in, in one yeah. fell swoop, uh, obviously you're, you're you're fresh off the fall season. But I wonder, you know, NBC has a track record of nurturing lower-rated shows. Good Girls is one where you guys have been expressed a lot of patience with that. It's coming back next season for I think season three. But I mean, I wonder what separates a renewal from a cancellation when you should have a show like Abby's, right, which is from Mike Schur. Does it make a difference that he already has an, another show coming up? I don't necessarily th think that that's what it is. It's much more about what Lisa was saying before, which is having that balance of it being a linear player for us as well as us seeing it that it performs well on an alternate platform and seeing that there's growth there and being able to say, like, does this make sense for us? and seeing that there's potential for more success with that. Look, Abby's is a show that we really loved, and Mike is an incredibly important piece of talent for us, and Natalie and Josh and all of these people are part of the NBC universe. For us, like Lisa was saying, this is it's one of the worst parts of our job is to have to cancel these shows, and we hope we treat people respectfully where they'll want to come back and do something else for us. Sadly, we can't keep everything around, whether it be for real estate reasons or otherwise, so we have to pick and choose what we can really bet on for the future. So that's sort of the way that we make some of those more difficult decisions. Now, one of the things that sort of TV does is something unexpected becomes a hit, and then all of the networks spend two, three seasons trying to chase that, usually with diminishing returns. What have you learned about what was unique and special about This Is Us, and what have you seen in the imitators that they're not getting? Yeah, and The Village was one that was, you know, this time last year after the development season went all the way through. It's like, this is the biggest slam dunk of NBC's drama pilots. It's a natural companion for, for This Is Us. It obviously, basically, it was described as This Is Us set in an apartment building. And then, of course, it's canceled. My mom is still telling me how upset she is about The Village. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, This Is Us, it's, hard, it's really hard to... You never know what's going to work or why. And I think This Is Us was something that came along at a time when there weren't a lot of family dramas. Also, I think that Dan had a really original way into doing that kind of show. And I think at the time that it premiered, not to get too deep, but it was a time where the country was looking for something maybe more hopeful, warm and fuzz. I think it just, it was the right show at the right time by a creator who had such an amazing vision and... You know, in the case of The Village, that was something that Mike Daniels, who's a writer that has a deal with Universal Television, came and just said, here's something I'm thinking about and had a bunch of loose ideas and spoke so passionately about it. We're like, we absolutely have to try that. His script was beautiful and they cast it really well and we put it on and it ultimately didn't resonate in the same way. And I don't know why if I, you know, if I knew why I'd be much, we'd have a lot more hits. But I think that, um, but it's something we are so glad that we did and we programmed and we'll keep trying. I think it's just finding shows with people who have something they want to say and figuring out how to support that vision in the best way possible. And we did that for The Village. I worked for my mom, but not for everybody else. <laughs> and you have Council of Dads coming yeah. out for next year, which is very much in a similar right. tone. And again, I think Council of Dads is something that is, we were developing it for two years. It was a book that in the wake of This Is Us, someone sent us and said this could be a great companion. We developed it 
with a writer, didn't get what we needed. We developed it again with Tony and Joan, who did this version and put their own spin on it and told family stories about their own family through this prism of a true story. It's incredibly emotional and aspirational and character-driven, which are all brand pillars for NBC and things that we strive for. So we're very hopeful that that connects with people, but we'll keep making them. Is the sort of takeaway, though, from a situation like that where you have to kind of rewrite it and find a different approach that maybe directly chasing a, this is another This Is Us is maybe not a good idea and that it has to come organically in a different way? I don't think we chased it. I think, again, we hear, we hear 300 pitches a year. People come in with their different ideas, and you just look for the ones that strike a chord with you that you think will strike a chord with an audience. And... Sometimes, you know, sometimes that show is in a medical drama. Sometimes that show is in a family drama. And I think any family drama we do, we are going to be accused is probably too strong a word. But <laughs> we're going to be told, like, you're chasing this as us. But I think there's room for more than one family drama because there's a million different families and a million different stories to tell. Yeah, we often say that we hear the same area many times throughout the course of the season, but it's somebody's personal experience or the way they've lived that makes that story special and unique, and that's the shot that we ultimately take. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you hear 300 scripts every every year. That's an incredible amount of pitches, but I wonder, you know, right now we're in the middle of a, a very big controversy where you have the writers going head-to-head -head with the agents, having fired all their agents. They're upset about packaging fees and affiliated studios where agents become the studio and produce the show and take a cut. How is that going to impact the upcoming development season? When you're, you know, are you going to still hear 300 pitches? I mean, how is that going to work? We've been talking a lot about it, honestly. And I think the one piece that we feel grateful for is that we have a studio that's aligned with a lot of amazing talent and writers so we feel like we can hear a lot of pitches through our studio that will bring in pieces already sort of thought out and put together and things like that I think then when it comes to the other side where people aren't represented I think it's going to be a much trickier issue but I think I know we look very young, but we have been doing this a really long time. <laughs> and um, decades of relationships that both Tracy, myself, and our teams have. And so I, people have been reaching out to us. And they say, if I have an idea, can I bring it in? And absolutely. And then we'll negotiate with a lawyer, and we can run it through the studio. So I think it might not come as ready-fashioned, which might actually be a bonus, and we'll just see how it goes. But we just had staffing where all the new shows were staffing that we went through without agents, and it ended up okay. I think it was a little more labor-intensive, but at the end of the day, all the shows are staffed, so hopefully I, you know, development will work the same way. Now, one of the questions that we've been hearing and having to answer dozens and dozens of times in the last month is, was Game of Thrones the last of its kind? Will we have another communal TV experience like that? And my answer always consistently is, yes, of course we will, because what's, you know, again, why are we here if we don't believe that? Why, in your opinion, will the next Game of Thrones come from broadcast? Because broadcast is the best of the water cooler communal experiences. I mean, while it wasn't on NBC, the Big Bang Theory's finale proved that there is an audience for broadcast television. This Is Us is the best of the water cooler television shows. I mean, I think our reach and what we do so well is 
connect with audiences in a way that a lot of the alternative platforms can't because you can binge anytime you want and it's a much more solitary experience. What we love about developing these shows is that they can connect in a way on broadcast that you know, makes us feel relevant and the stories that we tell are those that have more impact or can. I mean, it's right there in the name, broad, right? Yeah. And then I think it's our responsibility and the people we work with to create characters that people have to watch, relationships people have to invest in, and stories that surprise you or something unexpected happens. So at the end of the day, people have to watch it when it's on or within a short time thereafter. Three days, seven days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ideally three or less. But you know. <laughs> there you go. And a lot of the shows that we've had been fortunate enough to develop have then lived on these alternate platforms to do really well. I mean, the Superstore, Brooklyn, The Good Place, Good Girls, SVU, like they not only do well on broadcast, but they have this life afterwards on these other platforms. Yeah. Well, that's all the questions we have for you guys. Thank you so much for being our guests on the podcast. <laughs> Number five. As always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner segment. Dan, it's a big week ahead. This week, Big Little Lies returns for its unexpected second season. Pose and Baskets return on FX. Tales of the City returns for a new generation on Netflix. Queen Sugar is back for its fourth season on OWN. Younger, which was going to move to Paramount Network, but didn't returns to TV land for its sixth season. Oh, and one of my favorites, and by that I mean favorite punching bag, Designated Survivor is back for its third season on Netflix. Three seasons, two platforms, two studios, five showrunners. If, what do you got this week? If you're a regular listener, as we hope you all will continue to be, you will know that Designated Survivor has been a running joke. I don't want to say necessarily punching bag, but probably it's been a punching bag. Um, I mean, five showrunners in three seasons. If that doesn't tell you that there's not a creative issue with the show, I don't know what does. On the other hand, it was a wonderful piece of serendipity that we would be having this live podcast a day before Designated Survivor would actually be returning, and it gave me an excuse to watch a couple episodes of the new season of Designated Survivor, and uh, so I can report that it's actually kind of a little bit better than it than it was the past couple seasons. Um, because as I've always said. <laughs> and we should I should point out though, you've watched every episode of Disney. You were really you were really surprised when I told you that as if you've never met me before. <laughs> I'm constantly surprised that you watch everything and multiple episodes of it, and you keep like, how many DVR passes do you have? Many. Like 50? 100? My DVR is, like, it holds around... Does it have sweat coming off of it? <laughs> Look, it holds around 175 hours of TV. It's generally at around 80% full, and I'm basically performing day-to-day -day triage trying to make sure it doesn't get higher than that, and that's what it is. The thing I will say about the new season of Designated Survivor is, one, there is some swearing, so that's very exciting. <laughs> You know, go, hey, you're on Netflix. When on Netflix, do as Netflix does. Um, and you'll be pleased to know, a little spoiler here, the first person to swear in the new season is the president's daughter. Not so. Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> so I can tell that was exciting to everyone. No, <laughs> it, it, it is honestly, this season focuses more on the actual politics, which is always the side of the show that interested me more than whatever Maggie Q was off doing somewhere else. And uh, she's still there. But the first episode is largely her just being put at a desk job. And I'm like, okay, good, let's 
let's watch the politics stuff. On the other hand, if you were there for the Maggie Q version of the show, you should probably just go back and watch Nikita. It's probably available to stream somewhere. And it's actually a very good show. And you could watch that instead. And anyway, I watched two episodes. I cannot say with any certainty that I'm going to watch the rest of it. So Wait, you're quitting Designated Survivor? I just don't know when I'm going to have time, honestly. Will, I, you, will you watch when there's showrunner number six? Yes, for you. I will, I will be there for season four of Designated Survivor to see how it evolves. So yeah, okay, Designated Survivor, though, not the critics' pick of the week, no. incidentally, um, if anyone was worried. You, men you mentioned Pose earlier. The new season is, is very good. This is a, it, it, it's just a, a special and different show that's not like anything else that's on TV. And if you haven't watched it, you really should. Uh, we just started the Emmy voting window. And if Billy Porter is not nominated for an Emmy, I will be marginally disgruntled. I will flip a table. I will be marginally disgruntled. Leslie will flip a table. It's all reasonable. It is a very good show. It's a wonderfully acted show. And it, you just find yourself initially thinking, if it's not a world that you're part of, you find yourself thinking, OK, I don't know this world. Am I going to care about it? And the answer is almost immediately yes. It's really a show about family and friendship and sort of people needing people. And it's. And there's a big change in season two, right, there, in terms of some of the cast? Yes. Uh, the, the sort of gateway point of entry cisgendered white characters are largely uninvolved this season. So if for some reason you were watching Pose because of James Vanderbeek, <laughs> uh, and, and I don't mean that in any way to insult James Vanderbeek, who I know you love, Leslie. <laughs> Do not insult the beak. For those of you listening at home, Leslie did just raise a fist to me. Uh, <laughs> I, this is not a fist. This is this I, an open I hand slap. No. <laughs> How, how, were you guys here for the Dawson's Creek Writers' Room reunion at ATX? That was an incredible panel. James should have been here, but wasn't, but... No, no, James, James Vanderbeek was definitely not a problem in the first season. It was just the characters played by James Vanderbeek, Kate Mara, and Evan Peters were sort of there because of a... What feels like a note where someone said, will people watch this show if it's all a cast of trans actors people have never seen before? And someone said, I'm not so sure, what can we do? I'm guessing. And it didn't really improve the show. And losing those characters does not in any way diminish the show. So people should check out Pose if you haven't checked out Pose. And then Big Little Lies returns this uh, Sunday. Anyone looking forward to it? Yeah. Uh, has anyone heard of the uh, show's new star, uh, Meryl Streep? <laughs> OK, there's some. Series regular Meryl Streep. Series regular Meryl, Meryl Streep. That's once again, if you ever need to see why TV is where it's at and why movies are, I don't want to say irrelevant, but frankly, secondary in the conversation. Tune in on Sunday night and watch Meryl Streep acting opposite Reese Witherspoon, opposite Nicole Kidman, opposite Laura Dern, opposite Shailene Woodley, opposite Zoe Kravitz, and tell me where else you're getting that. You're not getting that anywhere. <laughs> and honestly, it's as fun to watch as you would imagine it would be. So it, there, there are plot things happening. People are investigating the murder that happened last season and whatever. No, you're, you're watching it because you want to watch these actresses who are all fantastic at the top of their game, butting heads. And it's a total pleasure for that. Yeah, well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. And thank you so much, Austin and ATX, for having us. Dan and I will be back next Friday from our lonely office in Hollywood. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. Uh, if you like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, we'd love for you to review us. And we already mentioned TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's our email address. We'd like to answer your questions. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.